Good morning. You're listening to Ask a Leader here on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. Welcome to this week's edition of Ask a Leader. As your host is Claudia Shambaugh, uh, every Tuesday mornings from 9 until 10. Today we're going to bring to you the remarkable work of two different women who document some very intriguing aspects of domestic, that is, family life. We start with L.A. psychologist Amy Wheeler's method of intervening with videotaping parent and infant interactions. We'll talk a bit about detail about that in the latter half of the show. Tammy Kramer-Sadlik, researcher at UCLA, looks at family over various cultures, examining as well with video documentation how families negotiate their various roles in raising children with all the pressures of everyday living. Be back in just a jiff. We are back. That wasn't much at all of a jiff. So, to start our um, first part of the program, my first guest is Dr. Amy Wheeler, in her current practice, Amy helps parents strengthen their bonds with their children and develop greater understanding how their personal histories affect the relationships they are forging. Since her undergraduate training from the University of Southern California and her doctorate in psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, she's founded the Parenting Discovery Center. For four years now, the Parenting Discovery Center works with individuals, families, caregivers, and groups of parents to enhance their self-understanding and build healthy and resilient relationships. Parenting Discovery Center focuses on parental attunement, we'll talk about that at length, I hope, to their emotional experiences as well as their children's to help find the best answers for them and their families. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks so much, Claudia. 
I'm glad to have you on today. First of all, the point of your work, I hasten to say uh, in, as we start, it's not to heap more advice on how a parent can be perfect, even though that must be the pie in the sky for the clients, right? Correct, correct. I think most people sort of come to me in hopes that I will help them find a way to be more perfect. Um, but I think really the goal is is to understand that perfection ought not be the goal. Um, it's actually not a helpful goal for the parent or for the child. Um, but to really almost tune down all the noise around parenting advice and to really sort of not that, I, not that I won't give guidance, because I do think that it's important to help educate parents around the sort of science and the brain science and neuroscience um, that helps to create healthy children um, and resilient children, uh, but to then approach their experiences through that lens to help them to understand how their own experiences are impacting Um, their relationships with their children and their experiences with their children, and to really try to just be as present as possible and living in the moment with their babies rather than kind of overthinking it and listening to someone else's advice. Um, Just in general, really trying to help a parent find their own voice in parenting. Well, and we're going to talk about that in uh, all sorts of ways, too, with your interview and later on with Tammy uh, Kramer Sadlik about you know sort of this over and overlooking over evaluating and uh, we're, we're sort of ambivalent I think in the United States with so many different cultural influences telling us putting us at sort of counter purposes with uh, what we do in our family roles that as you point out are so important that parents parents bring in all this baggage just even before the the delivery day right absolutely I mean relationships are a two way street. And you've learned how to be in the world through the relationships initially that you forged with your own parents. So you really need to make sure that you have a really good understanding um, and narrative of what your experience has been so you can understand how it's impacting you today. Well, I would like for you to talk about, first we'll talk about attunement and then attachment, or which, which order do you want to take that in? Is it attachment's the larger larger topic, correct? Uh, correct. Let's talk correct. about that then. The attachment, it's emotional, it's mental, it's social, and as you say so well, parenting effectiveness is not dictated by what to you as a child, what happened to you as a child, but how you make sense of those experiences. So how do you how do you get that out of the client and move into um the sort of ongoing connections they're making with their infant? Well, I think it's really important um, to understand that someone with a less than ideal um, childhood experience can still be an amazing parent um, simply by their own self-exploration of those experiences and understanding how it is impacting them today. Well, it's people who sort of say, oh, that doesn't really matter, um, you know, et cetera, that, that tend to have more of a disconnect around their relationship um, with their child currently. Uh, when you think of attachment from a scientific standpoint, attachment is really there to keep us safe and protected. A baby needs to attach to a caregiver 
in order to have a safe place to go to when in danger and also to know that there is safety to go to so that they have the ability to then explore. And all of this, it's a basis for, that the dependence becomes a basis for developing a healthy independence that's lifelong. Correct, correct. People all the time say, you know, well, we have to teach our children to be independent, and I actually completely disagree with that. I think independence, true independence, comes from the ability to be completely dependent as a baby. Um, The children that I see that have had the ability to become completely dependent upon their parents develop a natural sense of curiosity and in time develop their own independence from a real place of strength within themselves. Whereas children who are sort of taught, quote-unquote, to be independent, it's more of a defensive maneuver. It's more of a way that they've had to learn to survive in the world in order to get their needs met. So with this videotape, 90 minutes of this kind of videotape can tell you more than perhaps months of therapy. Is that correct, Amy? Absolutely, absolutely. When we're watching, and really it's it's 10 minutes of video, but we watch it over the span of probably about an hour and a half, um, we can really start to see if a pattern is becoming established. Um, You know, like I said, it's completely normal and important to have Um, some mismatch and repair in regards to attunement with your baby. Um, But when we start to see a pattern start to develop, then we have some needs to work with. So, for example, if a mother grew up in an environment where negative emotions were taboo, um, you weren't allowed to be upset or angry or sad, um, you might see in the video that she is really attuned with her baby and her baby's emotions, um, able to articulate them to the baby, really stay present um, throughout their experience. But if the baby starts to display discomfort, sadness, anger, she may start to shift into that transgenerational pattern of um, perhaps distraction or she may start to shut down because those emotions weren't tolerated for her. So it's very uncomfortable and difficult for her to tolerate them for her child. And at that point, her child starts to shut down around those exact emotions and begins to lose part of itself. Losing an emotional repertoire in that early infancy's development. Correct. And that's where the danger is for all of us, is we start to have this experience that our emotions are dangerous. Um, and that we're not allowed to sort of have that full range of emotion. Um, and so I mean, that's, that's one of the pieces in work that most people are really doing in therapy is trying to gain access to the full range of their emotions that weren't necessarily tolerated when they were children. Well, that's really, really extraordinary. And so when you, when you note this and you're watching these video pieces with the parents, how, how do you pass on these observations to the parent and how do they receive them? Um, I think each parent is different. Uh, I I really try to pass it off with as much um, tenderness as possible because chances are we're about to to hit on something that's pretty old and charged for someone. Um, So really what we'll start to look at is the pattern in the present day and 
typically, in my experience, just by watching it, a parent will start to register that this is an issue that they experience in their life. And they'll either bring it up or begin to, their body language will begin to communicate to me that we're on to something, and at which point I'll pause the video and, and we'll start talking about it. That's really, really extraordinary there. Um, I wanted to um, find out, now most of your clients are, they're, they're coming from various ethnicities and age groups. Who's coming to you for help? They're, they're, certainly they've learned, they're getting word of mouth. Uh, somebody's looking up the website. That uh, You must have gotten a bump from the Los Angeles Times piece that uh, was published in uh, last, the last of October last year. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and I would say that the range of my clients covers all sorts of cultural backgrounds, um, age categories, et cetera. The one common thread is it tends to be a parent who is relatively psychologically minded, someone who's had some therapy experience previously, um, has kind of begun their own self-exploration and growth to a certain extent, um, simply because... I think it takes that in order to be able to tolerate and also be interested in having someone really look at your interactions um, so specifically to help you become a better parent. Does this mean, Amy, then you probably have a larger, largely older clientele come to you who's had more of this background, more of a, and, and, I, I, and is over-attunement a little bit correlated with an older aged parent? I just have to guess. The helicopter parents have to be the older ones like me. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that that might be a broad generalization. Um, probably that does occur to a certain extent. Um, I think as we get older, we tend to have a little bit more insight and perhaps become almost too intellectual about what it is that we're doing. The overtuning, um, overthinking. Yeah, overtuning and overthinking rather than just kind of being present in it. Um, but but I don't think that this is specifically for an older parent. Uh, I really think that it's for anyone who is aware that they have had an upbringing that has colored the way that they relate to people and is aware of the fact that it's impacted their relationships with others in the world previously, and to be very clear on the fact that it will impact no relationship more than it will impact their relationship with their child. The one they're most concerned about at that point. Correct. Well, you're, Correct. it's a lovely, lovely website, the parentingdiscoverycenter.com, as we start to wrap up the interview here, where you, you give us a lovely reading list, for uh, for spanning the ages and and let's uh, give a moment to say your clientele are are the are infants aged about just before one year till about age five. Um, I would say typically starting around three to four months up to age five. Uh, I, I work mostly with the parents, not necessarily with the children. Um, so it's really about a parent who may be having a, a struggle with the change of becoming a mother or father, um, perhaps later on in their parenting experience where they're struggling going from infancy to toddlerhood or toddlerhood to a preschool-age child. Different things come up for us at different points along that journey based upon our own experiences 
and how they're getting triggered now in our relationship with our children. And I guess it's addressing the the parent's ability to finesse transitioning to another developmental stage. Correct, correct. And, and like I said, it's, it's about understanding what's getting triggered for us, um, simply from the standpoint of, you know, I may have an experience with my child who is making me completely batty in that moment, but a person with a different background may have that experience with my child and it would roll off, you know, their back like water off a duck's back. Right, right. Simply because that's not their trigger, that's not their emotional experience that's charged and heated um, for them. Whereas an experience that they might have that's really uh, difficult for them to experience would be easy for me because it's different from my childhood. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have more time for this, but I'm hoping that we'll have a chance to take up where we leave off with more about your practice as it develops, perhaps uh, maybe an older uh, childhood phase that you might incorporate into practice. Dr. Amy Wheeler, uh, thank you so much. That's Amy, Dr. Amy Wheeler, Parenting Discovery Center founder and uh, in the, the L.A. area, expanding her market area, I imagine, in the uh, greater Southern California area. All the best, Dr. Wheeler. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Claudia. The evening breeze caress the trees Next up on the show, we'll be talking with Dr. Tammy Kramer-Sedlick, researcher at UCLA, who also uses video documentation to tell us about the various ways in which our parental roles take up raising children and all the other jobs and all the other pressures in everyday living. Wandering by and lost in a we? Now, after having talked with Amy Wheeler about the parent infant interactions, we're going to move into a much more complex. Uh, scene to navigate, and we do that in this part of the hour with Professor Tammy Kramer-Sadlik, a researcher, Tammy Kramer-Sadlik. She is the Director of Programs with the Division of Social Sciences at UCLA. Dr. Kramer-Sadlik's research focuses on children and family life with an emphasis on sociocultural ideologies and moral expectations regarding what constitutes childhood, good parenting and health, how these work and give meaning to everyday practices and shape the experiences of individuals. Tammy Kramer-Sadley collaborates regularly with international researchers from Italy, Sweden, and France. Her work draws primarily on theories from linguistic and psychocultural anthropology. Today and on Ask a Leader, we ask Tammy Kramer-Sudlick about her qualitative study. Welcome to the show, Tammy. Hi. Well, let's start with the first of experiment of its kind. When you examined closely, opening the doors, that is the do- front doors, back bedroom doors, bathroom doors, of 32 California families, uh, wanting to find out how those families managed work and family life. Can you tell us how you got started on that project, what you were looking for? 
Well, we started on this project because the Sloan Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, uh, began su- funding research on this topic. They were particularly concerned with the rise in dual earner families, and especially middle-class dual earner families, and the fact that there's not much attention in research given to this, uh, this group, especially when uh, one thinks that uh, the two adults that uh, are the parents in the home work outside the home, and yet they have a third job to complete, which is raising family and running a home. And even if these three jobs, the two-paying job and the, um, the family job, are equally shared between the two adults, it's still 1.5 jobs per adult, and this is quite demanding uh, on, on either of them. Well, one thing, Tammy, I just want to break in. You, you lump together running the household and raising children. Don't we get to call that two uh, professions? So we've got a total of four going on. Well... You, you can argue, we, well, I would agree with you that with uh, the way that we parent today, that this is such a large job just taking care of the children, that the rest uh, is really uh, takes second priority. So if we wanted to do a very good job on all fronts, I would agree that these would be four jobs. But as it is, we were thinking, as it is, it is viewed as a mathematical problem. Three or four jobs divided by two adults is, is quite demanding. And the question is, how do these families and these adults manage do they succeed? What makes them thrive? Where are the challenges? This is what we were looking for. And so this particular demographic you were looking at between the years 2002 and 2005, and as you were, we were talking prior to this program, that uh, it's a, a sort of a middle class that's uh, it's hard to f- find. It's not as easy to find uh, at post-2008 as it was at that point, 2002-2005. Um, that's true. The families that we studied actually ranged in income. They were all in the LA area, and they ranged in inc- income quite greatly. Uh, what we wanted, uh, the, the uh, criteria that we used in order to define middle class was very problematic because middle class can be uh, a political definition, an economic definition, and also an educational definition. So how did you decide to handle that? We ended up deciding that the families had to own a home which is culturally preferable in our society, and still depend on their income to pay mortgage on their home. Um, uh, so that really gave us quite a range, but most families were well above, I mean, all our families were above the uh, median in Los Angeles, but many of them were um, just uh, above 100000 a year in income. Okay. And so are there other demographic uh, attributes that you are looking for besides this um, economic, these economic ones that you mentioned? Well, the characteristics were uh, dual earners, so two parents. They could be uh, not necessarily biological parents to the children in the home. They could be adoptive uh, or blended families uh, or also gay parents, so not just heterosexual couples. And um, they needed to work 30 hours or more outside the home. As That's I each said, one each of them working outside the home 30 hours or more. They needed to have two or three children living in the home with at least one child between the ages of 8 and 10. And as I mentioned, they had to have a mortgage and depend on their income to pay the mortgage. And of these families, were there any children with any special needs? There were. Uh, We had a family with a child with Asperger's syndrome and another with Tourette's syndrome and a few children with hyper ADHD, a number of of, uh, special needs, but that was not the focus of the study. Okay, but as far as what the family is sort of faced with anyway. So so this is the profile you had. Tell us um, 
I mean, yet there were some stressful moments, and you're watching what was going on. And I think there's a beautiful quote that you gave us about、uh, among these stressful moments. You saw key instances of warmth and love that make great families. Tell us about, you know, what sort of maybe there's a sort of a maybe a case study, a,、um, a an anecdote that you、uh, a, ser- a series of anecdotes that、uh, remain with you beyond years after、um, that study that you want to pass on to us today. Um, what you were、uh, the, the quote that you mentioned is part of、uh, my research on family time, and I was looking at the concept and or the notion of family time, or more specifically the ideologies that is very prevalent in the U.S. that families should spend time together, the family, the nuclear family, together, all members being together, and when the children are quite young,、uh, this time together is expected to be spent. Focusing on activities that are child-friendly, and、uh, the the issue here was that from、uh, interviews with parents and from、uh, looking at how these the daily activities unfolded, we saw that parents find it stressful to be able to accomplish this quality time. So not、uh, they require to find this time where the family can be, come all together. They were looking hard for activities that will. Satisfy that, and once all this effort was put in in place, then the goal was to actually make this time really come out successful to, for everybody to really enjoy themselves, and that was quite、uh, pressuring the families and especially the parents. So when we, my, my colleague and I, we started looking, analyzing the data that we saw from everyday interaction to see if we could actually. Find、um, moments that maybe were not planned, they were not structured, did not fall into the Family ideology, family family time ideology, in terms of the type of activities that were going on, and still where they、um, it seemed that the family were connecting, and that they were、um, really achieving the goals of unity that、um, that、uh, family time is、uh, suggesting. And so, what was interesting was that we saw that these moments are everywhere, all the time. Such as, for example, when、uh, a mother folds laundry on、um, that is spread all over her bed, and、uh, her eight-year-old daughter was sitting on the bed, chatting with her. And at some point, when the mom、uh, turned around, the girl put one of the socks from the pile of socks to be folded on her foot and buried her foot in the、yeah. in the laundry pile, and then started、uh, teasing her mom and asking her to guess which of the socks is her foot. <laughs> It's a soft foot, and it was just、uh, a very fun and、uh, brief moment of、uh, joy and playfulness between the mother and daughter. We saw similar moments、uh, when the mother and son are sitting waiting at the car wash for the car to be ready, or for father and daughter at the、um, standing at the、uh, cashier line at Trader Joe's and looking together at.、Um, At、uh, cards, for example, and having all kinds of playful and fun conversations that、uh, were reflecting intimacy and warmth and connectedness that we understand from parents、um, talking to us is what they are seeking when they are trying to arrange these more formal and subscribed、uh, prescribed、uh, versions of family time.、Well, so that was that was really encouraging. The only thing that we were aware of is that the parents are not aware. Of those moments, they do not give themselves a little pat on the back and saying we're doing okay when these moments occur. They look for those more formal moments to feel that they are doing a good job. 
So that's that's really where I think, Tammy, your qualitative study so really provides a real richness and insight for for all families is that we're just just those those precious sorts of moments, those fleeting um, treasures uh, in a day that weren't planned, that are inadvertent, that were um, um, that that really are what you were saying that are that give us a chance to have uh, a, a richness in our family life. Yes, and 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 um, I'm, I'm saying this in the context of parents feeling quite um, uh, uh, guilty and dissatisfied with the way they're parenting. Not all the time, but there are moments when they feel that they're not doing good enough job, or they're worried, they're uncertain whether they do good enough job. And here are, the, are those fleeting moments that are peppered all all, all over the, the the place in in different locations at different times of the day. But they are really present on regular basis that parents are not aware of. So the raising awareness of these moments seems to me important, one, in order for them to feel a little bit more satisfied with the way the job they're doing, and second, in order to really reduce the pressure to achieve right. only these formal moments. Right. If they're aware, they're aware, yes. it lances that pressure boil. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the idea. Yeah. And what's most special about our research was that we followed the families like reality TV, um, um, similarly to reality TV, and, and followed them in their homes and outside their home, wherever their regular uh, daily routines carried them. So if it were to the practice, to the doctor's office, to the soccer practice, the doctor's office, shopping for food for dinner, we were there with them filming whenever we could. And so what the, the special or the contribution of our study yes. is really getting into the nitty-gritty of everyday life and how these moments are handled. So, um, so in that sense, uh, what I think is a, a key to, to our finding was that um, this relationship between how parents feel about uh, or, or explain or make sense of their daily activities and how these daily activities unfold and the relationship to larger cultural uh, ideologies and expectations. So when I mentioned family time, for example, so there was, as I said, a cultural expectation that one would provide or find time for family in their daily life. This time would be special, would be dedicated to activities for the children. This was, for example, noticed also when they filled out charts. We asked them to fill out charts that describe their weekly activities. And we found that uh, out of the 32 families, 28 families noted activities as family activities, using the word family as an adjective to describe the activity. So, for example, you could see that on Friday night and Saturday night, uh, parents would describe their, uh, the, the activity of in the evening as watching family movie. Or for breakfast on Saturday and on Sunday, there would be a family breakfast. While on other weekdays, it would just be called breakfast in their chart. And when we, we clearly, there is a concept that we all rec recognize. If you talk about family breakfast, you assume that this would be a more leisure, leisurely event, that the food that will be served will probably be something like pancakes or waffles, something that the kids would like, also the adults most likely, but the, the menu will suit kids' tastes. And when you imagine in the evenings uh, family movie, then you think that it's a movie that obviously is appropriate for children, maybe PG, etc. This tendency of us to perceive our time as dedicated to the family specifically 
is really interesting. And in one interview, one family said it very explicitly by saying that they even turned down invitations to do something on Sunday because Sunday is their family day. Right. And so, so they would turn down social, other social engagement in order to spend this time with the family, which makes me understand what we interpreted to to mean that there is in the combination of all these requirements of family time, there is also a requirement that the family will be alone, will be isolated from the rest of the world, that this is a place where the family can find a safe haven, reconnect, create the strength. And uh, in comparing to Italian parents... Exactly. Sorry. I'm glad you're saying that, because I, I was thinking of that. Even Italian-Americans can, are, are uh, you know, older Italian-Americans talk about that larger kind of experience, a larger social context. Go yes. ahead and tell us what, what comparisons you would come up with with the following the, this is the Roman households in Italy. Right, exactly. So this, the, in their charts, for example, there is no mention of the, of the word family uh, at all, and definitely not as defining an activity. So that... Um, when, when, for example, there's a description of um, a, a hike or walk on the beach that, they, that will be taken on a Saturday afternoon, as, a, as some of the things that they do quite commonly, because remember these, uh, these weekly activity charts reflect a, a kind of a, 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 the, the typical week in their lives. So uh, when the uh, tr- uh, walk on the beach is mentioned, no participants are mentioned at all. So you don't have family walk on the beach. You just have walk on the beach but from interviews we know that the family spends weekends in their on their in their beach home which is quite uh, common in middle class families to have a house in the countryside in Italy in Italy and uh, and so you know that they, that when you think of walking on the beach it is the family because this is these are the people who are present but it's not defined so there's no um, um wordly it's not the a choice unit. of words yeah it's not it's not it's not de- de- defined that way in addition, for example, you might find that another family will, for evening on Saturday, would, would say dinner, fireplace, fre- fre- children, friends, friends of children. And here you get, and they even say fireplace. And what you get in this description is the idea that there is a dinner, that there are other people present, that are mentioned specifically friends and friends of children. And you get the word fireplace, which... Um, suggests warmth and intimacy, even though we don't know exactly what the structure of the home and where they are located, but you, we can imagine that there's a moment where people sit by the fireplace. We don't know exactly whom, but there is already in the choice of words we, 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 that the, this uh, parent chose to, to uh, describe their typical Saturday night. We see that the family is not in isolation, but is uh, meshed, the family time is meshed with others. With others. And, and the activities take um, importance. So they're sitting by the fireplace, having dinner, or earlier walking on the beach, rather than time for family. Now, uh, I want just, for those who've tuned in, uh, we're listening to researcher Tammy Kramer-Sadlik, Director of Programs and Division of Social Sciences at UCLA. We're talking about the ideology of family time in a cross-cultural series of studies that Tammy Kramer-Sadlik has been conducting with uh, colleagues. And we're looking now at the cross-cultural comparison between Southern California and L.A. households, that is, and Italian-Roman households. Now, the Italians were not followed around with the videotape like the Southern Californian households, were they? Yes, they were. They, but, were, uh, they were, too. Yes. By yes. Italians? All, all the studies... By Italian researchers in the University of Rome. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, um, so they're not—they're saying they're not dropping the family word because 
they're, they're sort of flowing in and out of that family structure. There's not this kind of uh, sanctimonious line of demarcation about them and us as it's, it's exactly. a strictly nuclear family unit. Uh, we, we, we concluded that, one, uh, that part of our cultural differences has to do with, with uh, the, the issue of responsibility for family well-being. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems, appears like a jump because I cannot get into all the details of the study. First of all, we'll I wanna, uh, so let me, let me first uh, return to what you just said and say that, indeed, the Italian families seem to treat family time as, as diffused across people and, and activities, and therefore uh, uh, see it as more spontaneously uh, occurring uh, and, and requiring much less effort and planning in comparison to our families. And therefore, that means also that there's less pressure to succeed in this particular activity time slot and less chance for disappointment. Because it, it is the most disappointing thing to plan a trip, fun, fabulous trip to the zoo and then have the kid uh, be unhappy all, all, right. all, 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 yeah, the whole time. So, so that would, would render this family time a failure. A lack of success is, is burdening parents. If you don't have such a, such a sense that the way to be a family and connect as a family is through these activities, that you have uh, less pressure and at the same time higher chances of feeling satisfied. But with the Italian uh, documentation here, are are they uh, really comporting more with a uh, an extended family, a more proximate, uh, a more proximate extended family members than what these more insular sorts and ad- and uh, fragmented uh, Southern California nuclear families? Not not in our sample. Okay. In our sample, the Italian families were not necessarily this kind of uh, the, the typical Italian family that we all imagine of this extended family that get together for those huge lunches, uh, you know, oh. in the sun. No, that's, that was not the case in our families, uh, in the Italian families. Uh, that's not to say that it exists, but uh, on the contrary, we find uh, our American families in, in Los Angeles, had uh, a good number of them had uh, um, extended, you know, family, extended family that they were connected with on a regular basis, including grandparents that helped with all kinds of chores during the weekday. For example, in two of our families, grandparents uh, made dinner, um, so the kids came after school to the grandparents once a week, and they made, uh, the grandparents made dinner, also for the parents who perceived it as a real treat not to have to worry about dinner and have the grandparents who provide homework. So this, and, or in another family we had, or in multiple families, we had grandparents attending uh, children's uh, games on weekends and being very involved in children's family, in the, their own grandchildren's family uh, activities. So... Um, so I, I cannot, this was not, even though this seems to be one of the things to look for, it doesn't seem to pan out in our sample in, the, in Italy or in, in, in L.A. We saw quite a lot of extended family. I know we don't have tons of time, but you are embarking on some research in Sweden has that, and, and France as well. Have they not gone uh, as far into an extensive a stage as, of study as has the Italian families? In the French study, we are focusing on dinner time. We have done a lot of work on dinner time in the U.S., and uh, specifically with our work in the Center on Everyday Lives of Families, the project that uh, we've been talking about, um, we noticed in our own families, this is the 32 L.A. families, that uh, the majority of the time people ate convenient food, less food from scratch, the, so cooking was quite minimal, that also pa- families did not eat together uh, 
as often as they would like to because uh, again another uh, strong ideology cultural ideology in our in the US is uh, the family dinner time and spending time eating dinner together is viewed as a crucial for well-being of the family as well as well as uh, positive outcomes for children and so in in spite of this ideology we saw that it was very difficult for families to come together to eat together and to eat uh, homemade food eat well together eat well together and even when they were home they sometimes they ate in separate spaces or in separate times and even if and even when they sat and ate together if you look at the actual video you see that many times people get up and come back and disappear from the table so there's not that ideal ideal moment where everybody is at the table for a, a certain period of time talking and eating together and uh, it's part of the explanation for this was that if you don't cook a meal, then you provide all kinds of convenient foods and different people can choose to eat different things. They're grazing. They, so or either they're grazing or they're, they might want, and one would want a taco and the other one would want uh, only a salad and the other one would want some kind of a pasta. All these are possibly coming out of the freezer and need uh, warming up in the microwave and already at different times. Therefore, eating is not necessarily uh, at the same time because food is ready at the same time. You need to get up for something else that you need for your own meal, etc. So there is that, that aspect as well. And in France, what we're looking at is, is uh, at family dinners. France is selected here clearly because the image that we have about French uh, food and French um, family uh, eating habits as being distinct from the from our habits so um we have started this study we're filming dinners in and uh, dinner preparation and dinner time in french parisian homes we also interview them about this and we also uh, film them shopping for food which we have done also in the us but not uh, with all 32 families with our families in france we do film them shopping for food and we have already found a few even though the data collection phase is not complete, they've already found some uh, interesting differences, not so surprisingly. Uh, all um, French families really eat together, and eating together, sharing a meal, meaning a cooked meal in the home. They shop more often, don't they? They, they may shop more often, although not necessarily. We see the tendency growing to have uh, a big shopping day, uh, shopping for food day over the weekend, but uh, they may get some fresh ingredients on the way back from work. Remember that these are also working parents, right. so they have some similar time constraints. Comparable. Yes. Uh, yes. Tammy, I wanted to, um, we're talking with Tammy Kramer-Sadlik, Director of Programs, Division of Social Sciences there at UCLA, about oh, family life. Let's just put it that way. Um, I wanted to know, in those settings that you're now documenting, are there screens uh, going off in different uh, uh, cultural settings, uh, sc- televisions and computers, and who knows, maybe uh, texting at this point? Um, Tech, not then, not two thousand two, two thousand five. But, but were there was there a difference in how much how many screens? I'm, some households can't eat their dinner without the, the the wide screen going at it. We do not have. We have not seen any of this in Italy or in France. Italy's data was collected at the same time in the U.S., uh, nor, nor in Sweden, actually. But in the uh, States? It's, in the States, we have seen a lot of the um, TV on um, and computers. Uh, that was the period that we collected data was before the, ver- the children had the 
phones and and right. texting. So we don't see much texting, and uh, even uh, although the adults had cell phones, they did not talk, or their smartphones did not really. Uh, they weren't as ubiquitous then. Exactly. So and you so, don't find that that much. Well, but, you know, Tammy, we're going to be hungry for your next research project to take up that the ever mobile uh, devices there. So um, we'll just yes. be staying tuned for that. Well, um, so anyway, you were saying about uh, the what the French uh, a difference in eating with. Um, uh, augmenting uh, the the weekly shopping with some fresh things throughout the week, uh, more more of that what we would consider that iconic dinner table setting in France. Right. And, well, I have to mention that I think that one of the problems that we are faced with here in just the US one. was the the what? Sorry. No, not just one, but what? Go no, ahead. No, no. One of them with regards to family dinner is that uh, is, is a number of things. But one is that there's a really lack of know-how. I don't think that uh, the parents that we observed, uh, many of them knew exactly how to cook. Not the same degree of knowledge as you, you could see in, in Italy or in France. And by that I mean not the ability to read the recipe and, and, and follow it, but really the, the knowledge that is so, so instinctual so that without recipes you can really have uh, uh, full meals. And and so the, really the skills of knowing how to make a, a sauce bechamel just just while chatting with a researcher or to and we saw that so so two things I have to say about that one is in our data in the U.S. data when we looked at a few families that did cook from scratch and compared the preparation time not the cooking time just the preparation the hands-on preparation time of uh, meals that were from scratch to meals that use convenience food uh, this, which are less cooking but more assembling and heating, we found that the difference in time between of preparation time is only 10 minutes. My goodness. For simple, from, from scratch meals. This is an important finding, particularly because I think that people don't think that that's the difference. That people think that to cook from scratch is a very lengthy process. And if you come from work late and you, have, you want to have a meal at the, on the table within 30 minutes or, or so, then you have a sense that that cannot happen from scratch. And that's one thing that is part of the lack of know-how, that, you, that what it means to cook is not really clear for people. And we saw that in front. And, and the other thing that I want to say is that cooking is for the parent who is at home, typically the mother. But if the father was the father to be first home and the mother was the late to come, then the father needed to cook. And that parent had to do it on their own. In France, well, we saw it, and in our, the, so far it's the mother who comes home early and cooks from our data in France. We see the children help, and we see that they know that the children help much more. And what I mean by that is that children always set the table and always clear, but we also see that people have some kitchen skills, some cooking skills. I'm waiting, Tammy, for you to talk about something comparable to the hiding the feet underneath the stack of towels in, in the kitchen preparation. Yeah, well, of course, we actually saw that in the U.S. too, because on, on weekends, parents may make... Uh, pancakes with their own children and have a lot of fun doing that. It's, okay. not, it's not that it's not. We do think we, there are many ways that we actually, um, this is, I'm, I'm uh, deviating back to the Italian uh, U.S. study. We, we, we did a lot of, um, uh, not a lot, but a number of studies that compared uh, parenting in the U.S. and in Italy with regard to family time, with regards to children involvement in children's uh, education, with regard to children's extracurricular activities. And we found significant differences, but the most important thing that I want to highlight is that many of the things were not so different. The daily life unfolds quite similarly. What is different is the, what pa- parents feel about, how parents feel about it and how people, parents make sense of their daily lives. 
And here is, is the difference. So that, that, for example, I hinted to the idea that parents are, may, may miss those um, unstructured moments, informal family time moments, because they always look for the formal and the structure, the prescribed version. And the yield, the yield, the yield. Yes, exactly. So, so uh, similarly to that, there's a lot. We feel that American parents are much more burdened by, by and pressured by all kinds of ways that they think that they need to be parenting, and some of them are really. Uh, ideologies that come from above. If uh, let me let, let me give you a, a quick example. Just a bit. Yes. Yes. Uh, we parents uh, have are expected to be very involved in our children's education. If you have a child in elementary school, it's not uncommon to go to back to school night and receive a sheet that goes around the ta- the, the room with parents request requested to sign up for volunteering time right. on a weekly yes. basis. Yes, I remember your research about that. Go ahead. Yes, that's that in itself is interesting. Uh, parents may have to sign on homework and may be understood to uh, to participate in certain homework activities. This is a very clear signal from the institution to the parents, you should spend your time on your child's homework, on your child's education. This is uh, really involving parents, and parents are doing it willingly and perceive that to be part of what good parenting is. Part of that ideology, part of the, the fiscal realities of the classroom deficits. Yes, that's absolutely true as well, and, and I'm not blaming anyone, but I want to highlight the idea that that puts pressure on parents right. and that they feel that involvement is, is needed. There are not, uh, not few parents in our study, since all of them are working, that try to find ways to still volunteer in their classroom, even though they can't really be there on a daily basis. So that involves doing some stuff after, after hours, take ho- take uh, um, homework and, and grade it after, uh, at home in the evening and return it to the teacher the next day. Or that, uh, that means for another mother, for example, to squish her working hours so that every Friday she can find two hours with the agreement of her boss to, to find two hours to spend in the school before arriving to her work, etc. I mean, we, we are talking on more and more work, parenting work that takes, that takes um, demands more of parents' times and more parents' efforts. We have to recognize that this is part of our culture and how the institution shapes parenting as well. And put the stress on it. Well, I know there's so much, much, much more to talk about. And your book will be coming out next month in February. It's a privilege we can talk about. No, 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 no. A book book is not coming out. A book will come this year, but I don't yet know when. Okay, well, when that book comes out, I'd like to pick up where we leave off with some of the uh, parts of the research that you were able to talk about to about today, Tammy, and uh, you know, give give it a, a a larger hearing on what you're finding because it's really really interesting, and I can just feel the listeners gasping for uh, uh, validation and breath from what you have to say about you know how we might be able to find ways to to do to do more with less of ourselves, with uh, less pressure around and that kind of thing, borrowing from what some other uh, cultural imperatives. Uh, you know, can, how, could, could inform us. Well, I even want... if we cannot find a perfect solution, recognizing where we should not feel guilty right. is, is already a great achievement. I exactly, think. exactly. Well, I, I do thank you so much for being with us on the show. I, um, well, when when the book comes out, let's talk about that again on Ask a Leader. Ta- Tammy Kramer said, like, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.